Hello and welcome. My name is Anthony Kirkendall, also known as Mr. K, and I'd like to introduce you to a brand new podcast series dealing with the 20-year period between World War One and World War Two. Uh, now, we'll be talking a lot about these years over the coming weeks, uh, the facts, the people, the stories, and the drama. The first installment that you'll hear today will be around 18 to 20 minutes, and the following portions will be about the same. Uh, I want to thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Without further ado, this is The Interwar Years, Episode 1, Chamberlain in Checkmate. Night to H3. I love that scene for several reasons. By the way, for anyone who's not familiar, uh, Ronald Weasley, Harry Potter, and the Sorcerer's Stone. I mean, it's got everything. First of all, it's chess, which in and of itself is awesome to someone like me, a proud alumni of the Moreland's Elementary Chess Club. Go Mustangs. And then, of course, you've got Ron, the best friend to the main character, pulling the strings, sacrificing himself for the greater good of the main character. He's the Samwise Gamgee to Frodo. He's the Han Solo to Luke. He's the Robin to Batman. I also like it because it's real. The stakes are real. It's not just chess after all. It's wizard's chess. If they lose, they don't get the Sorcerer's Stone to keep it away from Voldemort. And at the end of the day, you've got the good guy calling the shots. A protege playing the game he is in control. Not because he's a master chess player, though at the end it does seem like it, doesn't it? But he's in control because he can see the moves before anyone else does. What if Voldemort was calling the shots? What if he's in control? What if Darth Vader is in control? What if Sauron is in control? And what if they're the ones who can see the moves before anyone else does? What I'm really trying to ask here is what are the costs of that scenario? For our sake, it's all fiction, so we can afford to sometimes disengage, sometimes jump into the shoes of the characters. But for the players, the stakes are real. The potential cost is real. This chess analogy that I'm putting in front of you fits very, very nicely into the realm of diplomacy and geopolitics and global power politics. And it fits very nicely into the story that I want to get at today. It's a story of good and evil, depending on which side you're on. It's a story much like Harry Potter versus Voldemort, Frodo versus Sauron, Luke Skywalker versus Darth Vader, Neville Chamberlain versus Hitler, Checkers versus Chess. Now, the arena for this game will be confined to a relatively small space in a relatively short period of time. We are in Central and Eastern Europe from about 1935 to 1938, right up to the start of World War II. And during this time, Hitler is going to start to put his plan of action to dominate Europe into works. And he's willing to go to war to get it. Except Chamberlain doesn't know that. Could even say he doesn't believe it. But we'll get to that later. 
Now, in an attempt to stem this plan to dramatically increase Germany's territorial power, Neville Chamberlain, who at this time, between 1937 and 1940, is the Prime Minister of Great Britain, he and others, must we say, will pursue a diplomatic policy called appeasement. To appease someone essentially means to satisfy their demands, give in to their demands. It's more of a general concept or strategy than it is a specific word or thing. Basically, though, Hitler is aggressive, wants lots of land and territory, and Chamberlain, in an effort to avoid a larger-scale conflict, is going to tango with him. He's going to dance this dance with Hitler. He'll give Hitler what he wants, or at least what Chamberlain thinks he wants, and Chamberlain can say he calmed what is an increasingly volatile situation in Europe between dictators and democracies. By 1938, there will be more countries in Europe led by dictators and authoritarians than democratic governments. And Europe, on the eve of what we know as World War II, looks eerily similar to Europe on the eve of World War I. Lots of uneasiness. There was a rising militarism, especially in a few of the authoritarian states like Germany. The democracies, on the other hand, are not interested in similar investments. There's a growing sense of nationalism that, in my opinion, personally, never really changed since World War I. It just kind of evolved. If anything, it just got more intense. You've got new systems of alliances that are again building up between countries like Germany and Italy, Japan and Germany. That will come a little bit later. But Italy and Germany both will get involved into the Spanish Civil War that will start in 1936. And of course, you've got Hitler and his new German Reich or German Empire looking to gain some land. This is all happening at the same time, and it's happening simultaneously with the negotiations between Hitler and Chamberlain. Now, appeasement, as does much of the pre-war environment in Europe, stems very, very significantly from the Treaty of Versailles. As we know, the Treaty of Versailles was very harsh on Germany. Uh, they were forced to pay massive reparations, weaken their military, and lose lots of territory. And these requirements were met with deep distress and anxiety. Add on to the fact that the Great Depression started in the late 1920s, and you have catastrophically bad economic conditions in Germany. There's extreme political instability, and Hitler is going to use these issues facing Germany for his political gain. He will write a book during this time. It is his infamous social political philosophy, Mein Kampf, or My Struggle. And this book is so, so important for our story because Chamberlain, along with many other officials in the British government and in the British aristocracy, they don't read it. And had they read this closely, there's a good, good chance appeasement would have looked a lot different. And not just that appeasement would have looked a lot different, but I'm sure the whole approach to dealing with Hitler would have changed. There were many, many people, including the future Prime Minister of Great Britain, Winston Churchill, arguably the greatest Briton ever, who read this book and sounded the alarm for years. 
Hitler was not vague. He was not. And these anti-appeasers, as they will be called, people like Churchill, saw Hitler for who he really was. This was not a man who was interested in peace. He was going to squeeze out every last bit of territory he could, or at least as much as Chamberlain would allow, to set the stage for a larger military conquest, a world conquest. It's also important that the appeasement process will center around territory, but it also has to do with appeasing Hitler's defiance of the Treaty of Versailles. Territory, yes, is the most important and, for our sake, the most practical consideration. But Hitler's also defying the treaty in and of itself, rebuilding the military, making an air force, remilitarizing certain regions. But as I just alluded to, the British government is not unified in their pursuit of appeasement. There are people vehemently opposed to appeasement. But there are also people who are for it. And some of these people who are for it will actually visit Germany, see Hitler. They'll meet with representatives from the German government in an attempt to foster good relations between the two countries. But because Chamberlain is the prime minister and because Chamberlain continues forward with this plan, he will almost single-handedly get the historical blame here. If it's not clear already, Chamberlain is going to be the most important character in our story. And we must talk a bit about how Chamberlain viewed the world. Because as we know, how we see the world colors our responses, our reactions, our role, what we think our purpose is. Chamberlain is going to have an extremely optimistic view of this situation. If we fast forward a bit to early 1938, right at the height of negotiations between Germany and Britain and the other great powers, there's a letter that Chamberlain sends to a relative that kind of outlines his position. He says, quote, the dictators are too often regarded as though they were entirely inhuman. I believe this idea to be quite erroneous. It is indeed the human side of the dictators which makes them dangerous, but on the other hand, it is the side on which they can be approached with the greatest hope of successful issue. End quote. There are several things that I gleaned from this short passage, but I have to ask you first. Could you imagine those words coming from a U.S. president about a leader of a terrorist organization or a dictator from a foreign country that we're having issues with? What would the reaction be? Maybe I'm thinking that dictators are entirely inhuman. But this goes back to what I was saying earlier. Chamberlain is incredibly confident in his own strategy. He genuinely believes appeasement can be mutually beneficial. Hitler gets his territories, and Chamberlain gets to write his name down as a peacemaker. I think some of us would call Chamberlain naive. Some might say overconfident. Some might say woefully blind to the reality of the situation. And many back then did. But this short passage alone is so insightful into how Chamberlain views the situation and how he views 
the stakes of the game he's playing. Now, several months later, in September 1938, we will reach the top moment, the apex, if you will, of appeasement. Chamberlain and Hitler signed the famous Munich Agreement, and this agreement is going to be the defining moment of his time as prime minister. You cannot talk about appeasement without Chamberlain, and you cannot talk about Chamberlain without the Munich Agreement. You history buffs out there, myself included, I'm sure some of you are smiling because you know what's coming. That's the beautiful and fascinating thing about history. We see 2020. We know the result of this, but the players don't. We figured, and if we skipped ahead, we knew Ronald Weasley was going to win the game. But Ronald Weasley didn't know what was on the other side of that door after he won the game. Thinking about these things as if they were happening in real time, like I said earlier, putting ourselves in the shoes of these actors, these players, I mean, it's intoxicating. You can't help but be drawn in by the stakes and the story. Now, this document essentially ratifies the territories that Hitler has taken or quote-unquote acquiesced over the past couple of years. Now, in Chamberlain's mind, this is a line in the sand. For Hitler, as we'll see a year later, it's an invitation. At this point, Hitler has now remilitarized the Rhine, incorporated the Saarland, annexed Austria, a Germanic country, but nonetheless an independent one. He's done all these things. Not to mention all the Things that he's broken about the Treaty of Versailles, rebuilding his military, establishing an air force, intelligence services, all of this. And after this conference, he will now have the Sudetenland, which is an economically and militarily vital region of neighboring Czechoslovakia. And it's home to over three million Germans. Now, as I mentioned the mind-numbing historical irony here is that this document, which again is supposed to sort of draw a line in the sand, is supposed to kind of end this. Hitler's got what he wants, and we don't need to go to war. But this is only going to further embolden Hitler. Hitler will use his position in the Sudetenland, which again, if we're thinking about this from a war game scenario, is kind of the... Uh, the wall around the city protecting the rest of Czechoslovakia. But after he takes this, he's going to essentially just walk in to the country and conquer it even before the onset of World War II. Uh, by the way, Czechoslovakia didn't choose this. It was chosen for them. In fact, during the negotiations in Munich, while Hitler, Chamberlain, uh, Benito Mussolini, the head of Italy, and a few others, they're in a room negotiating this. Outside of that room are members of the Czechoslovakian government who every hour or so 
are being told what's going on. They don't get a choice. They have to accept this. It's another little nugget of this story that I think just kind of complicates it just just ever so much. But Hitler now has what he wants. And again, he just wants a living space for the German peoples. Or at least that's what Chamberlain thinks. Chamberlain is going to fly back to England and speaking to reporters on the runway, holding a copy of the document in his hand, declare, My good friends, this is the second time in our history that here has come back from Germany to Downing Street, peace with honor. I believe it is peace for our time. We thank you from the bottom of our hearts. Now I recommend you go home and sleep quietly in your beds. End quote. I cannot think of anything more apropos for Chamberlain to say. Peace for our time. It is that line in particular that will condemn Chamberlain to the legacy that he has had right after World War II and that he has had pretty much since. Today, we understand how cataclysmically wrong Chamberlain would be. And it's worth asking the question, and this is something I struggle with and it's something historians struggle with too. How? Why? I mean, Chamberlain and many people were getting anxious. I mean, they weren't stupid. They weren't blind. They felt the growing pressure over Europe. But he didn't understand that he was enabling Hitler. Again, because we don't really know if he knew his true intentions. He didn't read his book. No one, obviously, at the time, except maybe Hitler, knew that World War II would start just a year later. But they were not stupid. And it's not like Hitler was a good soldier here. It's not like he followed along, played nice, came through on his promises. I mean, he was constantly using back channels to get around Chamberlain and the other great powers. He would declare his commitment to world peace one day, and the next would invade a neighboring country. I mean, so often, Hitler would make demands. Chamberlain would go back to work with his staff, trying to come up with a plan of action, trying to put something together, trying to find a way to appease Hitler. He'd finally draw up something, take it to Hitler, and Hitler would say, eh, I don't like it. I want more. I want something different. It's tempting to wonder if, and it probably is true, that Chamberlain's optimism, that confidence, that trust in the, quote, human side of dictators, unquote, blinded him. And as we saw, and as many saw shortly after the war, Hitler was the one in the command the whole time. He was the chess master. He was the one who saw the moves before his opponent did. Chamberlain, on the other hand, was the one taking the bait the whole time, at times believing Hitler and that all he wanted was a German state, at times confident in his own beliefs that his appeasement process was going to avoid a potential conflict. And at the top of the show, I asked you or tried to get you to envision this as a chessboard. And this is why, especially, especially in diplomacy and geopolitics, and when you've got millions of lives on the line, that's why it's so important 
to understand not just your strategy, but your opponent's. It's also important to understand the game itself. Are you playing checkers? Are you playing chess?